You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Lintonmeyer. My guest for episode 190 is Jad Fair, best known for his work with the band Half Japanese, which has released 20 studio albums plus several live albums and EPs starting in 1977. You're right now listening to Said and Done from their 1988 album Charmed Life. This was the era that had them opening for Nirvana on one of their biggest tours. And they're still going periodically now, but Jad also has a very prolific solo career, especially doing a lot of collaborations with other artists, often just involving his vocals. We'll talk about several of those. The songs we're going to focus on are Fate is on Our Side from a new collaboration with Samuel Locke Ward. The album is called Happy Hearts. Then we'll look at a recent half-Japanese track from the album Perfect 2016. The song is called Hold On. Then we'll look very far back to a 1977 solo tune, Frankenstein Must Die, supplemented by a very recent short tune also about Frankenstein called Do It To It from last year's Now It's Back album. And we'll conclude by listening to Cupid by Teenage Fan Club and Jad Fair from the album Words of Wisdom and Hope 2002. For more information, please see jadfair.net. For more about this podcast, see nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. And if you want to support the effort, go to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic, which will get you ad-free episodes and my episode notes. So I will play a little bit of Said and Done by Half Japanese from Charmed Life, 1988. I usually like to start with sort of the thing that people are most famous for or their seminal foundational thing. But it seems like with Half Japanese... I don't know, there are three different eras. You know, you could do Calling All Girls, you know, do your first late 70s single. You could do something from the early 80s. There are a lot of sort of seminal stuff. This seems to be where you sort of kicked off commercially. I don't know. Things from this era seem still in the live set. From the very earliest ones, we were doing mostly 30-second songs or, you know, one-minute songs, which when you're doing live shows, people want more than 30 seconds. A lot of times. If you're the Ramones, you could do a lot of songs. You could just plow plow through. And as part of the story of the evolution of that, just adding more members, that when it was just you and your brother, then it was sort of early Mekons or early residents of we're artists. We don't play instruments in the normal way. We don't know chords necessarily, but we're going to do something that sounds identifiably like punk rock. It's going to have a lot of energy. It's going to have a lot of dynamics. It's going to be very theatrical. But then by the early 80s, you have like a rhythm guitarist, a bassist that are sort of holding down something recognizable, you know, even 50s rockish so that you can still, you know, go crazy over it and do talk singing. And when my brother and I started doing shows, it was just the two of us. But then we noticed that it was a lot of the same people coming to the shows each time. And we became friends with them. And a lot of times doing music with someone It starts as a friendship, and then it goes on from there, which actually happens with a lot of the collaborations I've done Mm -hmm. with like Yola Tango and Daniel Johnston and Teenage Fan Club. It all started as uh, friendships, and then it took off from there. Well, let's get one of those out there. I don't want to spend too much time going through the history when we're going to go back through it later in this interview. Fate is on our side is the new single from you and Samuel Locke Ward. The album is Happy Hearts. It's been released in full. The single came out in 2022. You have a few introductory words about it and about the structure of this collaboration before folks hear it, and then we'll talk more in detail about it. 
Samuel uh, contacted me about a year and a half ago and uh, said he wanted to record with me. But during that year, I set a goal for myself to uh, release 100 albums, which is, you know, takes a bit of doing. And I needed to do at least around two albums each week, which I can do that. But to take on other projects at the same time seemed a bit much. So I told Sam that I wanted to do it, but give me a few months. And he got back to me and then we started doing just uh, one song each week, which was a good schedule for both of us. And was it purely like with Kramer and I assume Yola Tango, where he did the instruments and set those to you and you didn't have to be in the same room that you would come up with the lyrics. And then clearly, in this case, it went back to him and he did some more stuff reacting to your lyrics. Yeah, um, Sam would do the music, send it to me, and then I would do the vocal and send it back to him. And quite often, Sam would then add some overdubs to that and some vocal tracks, backing vocals to the songs. Fifties ish. I'm trying to th- like the da, 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 da. like it's quoting something from the fifties or something, but I don't know exactly what. Especially with that yeah. particular kind of circus organ intensity or something to it that he's got with the tremolo guitar and stuff. 
Any thoughts about when you received this, what your thoughts were? Did you know this was going to be the single? How, how do you go about then deciding which parts to sing over, how much time to spend with it, etc.? Most of the times, I mean, this is with Sam or with Half Japanese, with mm-hmm. anyone I work with, I don't like to hear the music before I record the vocal. It just seems more spontaneous. Well, it is more spontaneous. So many of the lyrics, it's just, I don't know, ad-libbed or it's a natural flow is what it is. So this is literally first take or did you kind of get the ideas down and then go back for a second take to sort of fill in the gaps? Some of the songs we did, I did do uh, two or three takes. I'd say most of them, it was a first take. Okay. So the fate is on our side. You had nothing written down. (laughs) Are you working from, you've taken... Bits of poet. I heard you in another interview saying that, like, you write stuff down as you think of it, and then you pull it out as you need it for songs, and sort of skip between. Uh, right, One right. song could have several pieces of paper from different times. Well, I've got a bunch of uh, notebooks, and I haven't heard of any other songwriter doing things this way. All it is is words that rhyme. I can have that in front of me, and if I'm kind of stuck on what should I do next, well, here's a word. And I have that at the end of a, a line. And okay, what's it rhyme with? Well, here's the, the word that it rhymes with and then piece it together. Well, and you have things that sort of emphasize the rhyme and level be our cure. A wonderful future, like weird accents of syllables and things just to kind of good naturedly play with, you know, the rhyme should go there. It doesn't matter if you wouldn't say future in, in speech. Yeah, maybe you wouldn't. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I've been known to do that before. but So the idiosyncrasies that are in the lyrical style are maybe part of just, that's just the way you talk. And if people think that sounds unusual, well, that's just... I'd say a lot of it is what's natural for me to do it. You know, for music and for lyrics and for timing, it all just has a flow to it. And clearly, if you're improving. Then, you know, go ahead, said the sign. The fact that there's a sign in the first slide, it, it doesn't matter. There's no question of who put up the sign. It, you know, it's not that the sign has to come back later in the song. It's just, it's a thing that rhymes and it supports the mood, which is, you know, this joyous thing that you were channeling from the music. I like it when uh, songs have a meaning, but it, it doesn't bug me if a song doesn't have a meaning. I think of the Beatles have wonderful songs. But if you just look at the lyrics for most of their songs, there's nothing there, which doesn't make it a bad song. It's just words that rhyme. I wasn't sure. I was just writing this down as you said. Maybe you don't even, since you make it up on the spot, do you even like write them down afterwards? Because you're not going to play this live. Like, do you even remember what you said throughout necessarily? Well, when uh, Sam and I sent the albums to uh, Kill Rockstars, they requested lyrics from me. So I went back and listened to the songs and wrote down the lyrics. But no, that's not something I would normally do on my own. But the uh, record company asked for it. So so they got it. Was it on the table too? Like some of the guitar work, I wouldn't be surprised if this was you and your sort of bendy rhythmic stage guitar. But that's just something Sam did. All of the guitar work is by Sam. Okay. And with some of these collaborations of this sort, I mean, is it just predefined like, you're doing lyrics and that's it. Or is there, oh, I hear some extra percussion in this. I'm just going to go put percussion or an extra guitar solo or something while I'm doing it and have it a little more integrated. I have added some extra percussion and different things to some of the songs that Sam and I did. 
But for, boy, I'd say 99.999% of it is Sam. So the big question in this song then is, there's a big part where he or something on his end, you know, with this chanting, this is the spelling part, which is kind of the catchy chorus where you stop. But that wasn't there when you received it, right? So was it just that you just left space and you said, do something there? Or was there parts that he actually muted of you? That Well, during that part, I thought it would be an instrumental part. But then Sam added the vocal thing, which fit perfectly. What state of completion was it at? Was it just the rhythm part and then let's see what you do and then I'll build the lead stuff around it? Or did it already have crazy lead guitar stuff under it when you heard it? Plus the uh, music was there when I received that one. And then I added the vocal and then sent it back to Sam. And then Sam added his backing vocal. And I guess songs with this theme are not unusual for you. I listened to some of your hundred albums, not all of them naturally, but like the last couple are all monster songs, joy songs or monster songs or love song. You know, here's how much I extremely love you. I mean, is it sort of like those are at least modes that you can go in and improvise in with some freedom. It's not like you're thinking through some metaphysical point that I've never made before in any other song. Or are there some of the weirder instrumentals that you get sent that call for that and you purposely stretch outside the three themes that I just (laughs) sketched out? I certainly don't try to limit myself at all. I'm I'm up for whatever. I've done uh, lyrics for about 2,000 songs. I mean, that's a chunk. I think more than a lot of people do. You know, it just comes to me, comes to me very easily. Sure. I started to think of you more like a jazz guy that, you know, when Miles Davis or John Coltrane, they have a lot, a lot of albums because every time they would go into a studio that they would record with the band like, oh, there's another album that if you have an improvisational style and they all sound like Coltrane or they all sound like Miles Davis It's not, you know, there's some evolution over their style and they try different things, of course. But like at any given session, it's not like I have to break the bounds of anything that I've ever done before, because then that's how to not be prolific. And I suffer from that, that I feel like if I'm going to write lyrics, it has to be some idea that I haven't expressed before. And that's why I haven't put out an album in three years. (laughs) But it sounds like you have a a good formula for just being able to turn the faucet on. Let me put some jad on your album. It could be anything. (laughs) I think I have a pretty good, you know, success rate on, you know, what I do. I'm not worried about whether it sounds like some other song I did or any of that, you know. (laughs) I mean, the main thing is for me to sound like me, which you would think with uh, musicians that sounding like yourself, well, you know, duh, of course you're going to sound like yourself, but that's not how most musicians do things. A lot of musicians start up, if they're a guitar player, well, they want to sound like, you know, Clapton or they want to sound like somebody else. But with me and with my brother, David, we just wanted to sound like ourselves. You would think that would be the easiest thing, but for a lot of people, that's uh, very difficult. Well, let's get a second song out there. We can hear some more of your recent stuff. So you had picked the song Hold On by Half Japanese from the album Perfect 2016. It's the guitarists and those folks that you work with. They're basically doing what Sam was doing. Or are you sort of, as the leader of Half Japanese, more involved from the start in these songs? Like you have a demo or you have something like that? No, well, the uh, musicians I, I work with, Half Japanese, uh, John Sluggett, Mick Hobbs, Jason Willett, Jill Reeder. I work with them because I think they're the, the best at what they do. 
there's no need for me to dictate to them. I mean, John knows how to play guitar. Just let him do it. That's something that you know you're actually going to be playing this on stage. Is the process any different in terms of the, I don't want to hear beforehand, I just want to improvise as I go. And how is this different than what you did with Sam, adding this vocal? We're doing songs on stage. I like to be able to remember words, (laughs) run through the songs several times with the band. One thing with the band is we all live in different cities, Mm -hmm. different states, and two of the members live outside of the U.S., It's not like we get together every weekend. We only get together when it's time to record or time to do shows. Are you still sort of the manager or there is like one person, Jason, or somebody who's the musical director that you feel like if most of the riffs don't come from him, at least 
how do the politics and the mechanics of this band work at this point? You know, Jason plays bass, so he's in charge of the bass. John plays guitar, so he's in charge of the guitar. Jill's a drummer, so he's in charge of the percussion. Mick Hobbs plays guitar, he's in charge of his guitar. So it's like having five bosses. Not one of them is more special than any of the others. We all know what we're good at, and we all do what we feel we should do. I mean, I understand that if you're all in a room together, then you can like do group jams, or you know, at least if the four of them are in a room together, they could. But if you're mailing tracks, at least either of the guitarists, it's harder for the drummer to initiate a song, maybe. Unless the drummer also plays guitar or something. Do you even have any idea? Or by the time they get to you, their contributions are all at least in outline. Like, is there a demo coming from someone for this song particularly? For that one, no. We uh, had a very few days in the studio. We had, I think, five days to record the album. We had to work fast, which we're able to do. A lot of bands, I think, go into a studio and they don't make full use of the time. But with Half Japanese, we keep to it. We're very aware of the cost of a studio and uh, we uh, just stay focused. So you have some rehearsal sessions that you're not paying for studio time for beforehand. And that's when the songs actually get written. Is that how that works? (laughs) No. Or Or is it in the studio you're writing them? In the studio, we're writing them. Correct. Well, that is okay. (laughs) See, that's an interesting way of describing it of, other people don't make best use of studio time because pretty much every band that I've been involved with, it's, man, every second that we spend in the studio is going to cost money. So we have to just, the songs need to be perfect. We need to get them rehearsed. And so this is, in fact, maybe even record them. And in fact, I've had some albums where we record them and then we're like, we don't need to go in the studio. What we just recorded is fine. Let's just release that. And then we didn't have to pay anybody by the hour, but you're saying that it's actually most economical the way you guys write things. To just maybe somebody has a guitar idea before they come in, but nothing is shared with the band until you just get in there and you build the song. That's how we usually work. A lot of that, I think, has to do with living in different cities because mm-hmm. it's expensive for all of us to get together. So we only do it when it's time for a tour or time for recording. Did the pandemic stop you guys from recording for a while? It did stop us from getting together. Didn't feel right about getting on an airplane. Sure. During that time. So we uh, still did some overdubs at at our home studios. Yeah, that's what I was going to th- asking if it became more like what you do with Sam or, or some of these other folks where you're just sending each other tracks. And so the guitarist puts down something and sends it to the drummer. I mean, well, we had uh, basic tracks from studio times that we had oh, okay. before that. So it was a matter of working on overdubs and mixing. You know, sometimes mixing can take the bulk of the time because with five people, it's difficult to get five people that agree on a mix. Yeah. How does that work? Is that you're all back in separate states? Do you do the mixing or are you sending it to somebody else that you're approving and then it gets, how does that work? Jason Willett has been doing the mixing for the last four albums. Before that, we had John uh, Diederich from Deerhoof mm-hmm. do the mixing on two albums. It's nice to have one person in charge of a mix rather than trying to mix by a group. When it's one person do it, they just seem to be more spontaneous and more fearless than if you have everybody do it. It kind of melds together. Sure. 
like all the keyboards I'm hearing in this song, because I, I just know you've done a bunch of albums just with Jason that are very fleshed out orchestratively. I mean, is Jason a one-man band kind of guy that just happens to play bass in this band? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, Jason can play pretty much anything. Mm-hmm. Although lately, for the last six albums, he's only been playing bass, doing some, some keyboard. We're going to have a, a recording session in uh, March in London. And I've asked uh, Jason to play some guitar on it. And he told me, well, he hasn't picked up a guitar in the last six years. He would prefer to just stay on bass. So (laughs) I guess that's what we'll do. Let's stop for a little break. I've often told you here about Masterclass, where you can learn from the world's best minds anytime, anywhere at your own pace. There are over 150 instructors at this point. There are two dozen music classes in particular, and the catalog features many of my favorite writers, entertainers, politicians, even some philosophers. This week, I sat down with John Legend's songwriting class, and it does exactly what we do in this podcast. For instance, his lecture on song structures makes it very clear how a typical song is broken down. Then he illustrates this with his hits with Ordinary People and All of Me. So very specific, very helpful, very concise, whatever kind of music you like. You're going to find some masterclass that interests you, whether it's Yo-Yo Ma or Metallica or Ringo Starr or Questlove or St. Vincent, Reba McIntyre, Dead Mouse, Hans Zimmer, Danny Elfman, Usher, Herbie Hancock. The list goes on. You can watch them on just about any device. You could choose just to listen. You could do it at double speed. You could really dive into a class or just listen to little bits of a lot of classes. There are supplementary materials. You can have conversations with other members who are experiencing the same class. I highly recommend you check it out. Get unlimited access to every class. And as a nakedly examined music listener, you get 15% off an annual membership. Go to masterclass.com slash examined now. That's masterclass.com slash examined for 15% off masterclass. Now, for all you music fanatics out there, here's a great podcast to add to your must listen list. The Inside the Mix podcast is about music production and songwriting. Host Mark Matthews speaks with a producer or mix engineer in each episode and demonstrates a music production technique that you can use for your own projects today. The Inside the Mix podcast explores what motivates music producers and mix engineers at every step of a song's creation, from the initial idea to the final mix. It also provides a picture of how a music producer grows and develops throughout their career. This is an ideal context for introducing you to new music production and songwriting techniques, and you're going to come away from the podcast with a wealth of inspiration. You're also going to learn more about mix engineering, and you'll get filled in on synth music and genres you always felt like you should know more about. You'll come away a better music producer and a more inspired artist. Start listening today wherever you listen to your podcasts, or find the show at markmatthewsproducer.com slash Inside the Mix Podcast. And so there's none of your, I want to call it stunt guitar, just because that's a term I'd heard before for like what Adrian Ballou did with the talking heads. You know, you got your rhythm, you got your lead, and then we need somebody to go. And I know you've got a guy in the band that can do that with some facility. Which one is the lead player? Is it? I'm John Sluggan. Okay. But then I've also seen you with your, how do you even describe like your guitar where you can bend the neck in a crazy way. It's a rhythmic instrument, but yet you can do pitches sort of. Put the neck on with uh, rubber bands. Okay, all right. Which allows me to do a lot of bending. (laughs) I mean, extreme, which haven't heard of anyone else do that. No, and I saw a video of you from the early 80s where you were the lead player in that. They were kind of holding down a nice 50s-ish rock thing, and then you would come in with the stunt guitar, but it doesn't have to be a 
because you, you know, somebody has really fast fingers and makes your jaw drop in that way. It's that I have this unique instrument that can groan and kind of do what your voice does. You know, it's not like your voice, you know, it's not talk singing like Lou Reed most of the time what you do. It's got a lot of pitch variation, but it's more like a punk guy or, you know, you can yell, you can croon, you can, but it's not necessarily. So I don't know. I see a parallel there and what you do with your guitar and what you do with your voice that they're very expressive, but there's no a question of being on key or not because they're not trying to hit specific pitches exact most of the time, at least. A lot of it has to do with just timing more than anything. Because I think I'm pretty good at timing the vocal and also timing the uh, guitar. I really enjoy playing the uh, guitar with the rubber bands because I can do so many different things with the guitar that I would not be able to do. Is that the only guitar you play at this point in any of your recordings? Or do you just have your normally tuned guitar that you pull out for some stuff? I have an acoustic guitar that I'll play at my home for some recordings and actually tune it. I do know some chords, not a lot, but I can get by a bit. You know, I've heard some of the One Million Kisses or whatever, like the ones that have a steady rhythm acoustic, that's at least something that you can cover in a solo show or whatever, whether or not you were the one who actually did that on the recording. Right. I've seen you do some live stuff where you're just singing and, you know, you can be very theatrical and jump around. But it also seems kind of nice to have the guitar in your hand, even if you're not using it that much. Even if it's the sounds that people are hearing are 90% from the people that are backing you. I don't know. It gives you something to do with your hands. What's your theory of vocal stagecraft of like some people play with the microphone and it it can get a little distracting? Well, I've done some shows where I don't even plug the guitar in. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's not mic'd. Nobody can hear it, but I still like to have guitar in my hand and it, it just feels good. You know, sometimes I will do things to try to make it more difficult for myself. I had a show in Seattle for the very first song. This was a solo show I was doing. I took out some wire cutters and cut through all the strings of my guitar just because I thought, well, if I don't have any strings on my guitar, what am I going to do? It kind of forced me to do something different than I would normally do. And and it was still a good show, is the thing. Sometimes I try to make things more difficult for myself, because you learn from that. Well, I saw you have a pretty good rack of pedals in front of you, so that if you're doing you know, a solo show with this bendy guitar that you can't play a chord on, that's not an option, but you can rhythmically accompany yourself. And now I want to rhythmically accompany myself with some giant delay or with some distortion or something, just these theatrical gestures. I don't know, this really resonates with me when I I was in composition school for a while in college. You know, I was trying to do this 20th century stuff and I got a comment that, you know, you could actually do more with pitch because I just felt like I don't really understand 12 tone or what the avant-garde composers were doing, but I do understand... You know, just this kind of like thing that you could do with your mouth and let's write down and make some instrumentalists do that kind of stuff. So like it's exactly the theatrical kind of stuff you're talking about in terms of being good with the rhythm and where the stops and starts where I noticed that you're still, even if you're not playing a guitar that is hearable, you're still kind of directing the band, right? Like here's where we're stopping and now we're going again, you know, that kind of theatrical directing. Yeah, I think with guitar... I was a big fan of Pete Townsend, not all that much because of his guitar playing, but just how he moved his arms. <laughs> the nice, the windmill. Yeah, that really uh, appealed to me. You're making me feel it. 
in my shoulder as I, you know, it's not a very natural thing to do that complete windmill and come down with force and not, I don't know, I get bloody hands when I try to do that. But that's because I mostly play acoustic without a pick. And so it's always a little dangerous when I have sharp strings near, like the nylon that I can't, I can bang on and I can't hurt myself. We've been talking a lot about your guitar style. So let's go all the way back to Frankenstein Must Die, 1977, one of your solo things. So this is you doing the guitar and doing this rant. Is that right? Or is this your brother doing the guitar? I did all the uh, instruments on that song. I assume that the cymbal crashes then were an overdub or were you like hitting something with your foot while you were doing this? The um, percussion was uh, overdub. Okay. Cut me up on the telephone, showed me to go to your house at 8 o'clock. So I went down my steps at 7.30 and I started to walk over to your house and got to your house. And it was about 8 o'clock, so I knocked at your door. You didn't even answer the door. So I knocked at the door once more, but you didn't even come up to answer the door. So I opened up the door and I looked around upstairs in your bedroom to see if you were up there, but you weren't up there. So I went downstairs and looked in your kitchen. You weren't in your kitchen, so I went over to your living room. I saw you there. You were there tied to a chair. And the sun had you by your hair. You playing party games with your hair while you were there tied in a chair. And I don't care because you didn't even answer the door. So I don't care anymore. So I went outside and I went downtown and I went over to a store and I looked around. I went over where they keep some records and I bought myself a new record. Then I went over where they keep the candy bars and I got myself a chocolate bar. I went over where I paid the money and I paid some money and then I went home and I walked up to my room and I opened my door. Then I went to my kitchen and I got a drink of water and I went over to my um, room and I sat down and I turned on the TV, watched a little TV, but then I started to feel sorry for you. I mean, I know you treated me bad tonight, but there were times in the past when you treated me real good and so, well... Well, I got sorry for you. I felt sorry for you. So I went down to your house and I kicked in the door. I went in the living room and I said, Mr. Frankenstein, you must die. And I took out the gun that I had and I shot him. And I untied your ropes and I let you go free. We had a little party and we danced around and I had a lot of fun. There's enough interaction between what the guitar is doing and what the voice is doing that I imagine this was at least, if not written, delivered as a single performance and only the percussion was overdubbed. Or was this a guitar jam first? I did the uh, vocal and guitar at the same time. Was the whole thing improvised or did you have something written down of some sort? It was pretty much improvised. I mean, it was so many years ago, but I would be surprised if it wasn't improvised. Well, then I'm surprised then that this made it into the half Japanese live set that I've got a, this version from Boo, which is live in 1992, sort of that classic lineup. 
having to sort of relearn this, something that was improvised and figure out what was I saying there? Not that you're trying to do the same thing on guitar, but it also seemed like you felt out a little more like when you get to the point of, and I felt sorry, I felt sorry. Then you sort of, it's a more dramatic moment in the live version. I started to feel sorry because I know you treated me bad tonight, but there were times in the past when you treated me real good. So I well, I felt sorry. I felt sorry. Then I went over your house. Right, you slow the guitar down and you stop more, you know, just to deliver it a little less in just one rant. With that live one, having Jill playing drums really added to it. It's not like I would try to play guitar the same way I did on the uh, record, but you know, I still have the same feeling for it. So, you know, it all comes together. So do you have any idea where this story came from? I mean, I know you you just were into monster movies. A lot of song, your songs are about, you know, the crawling eye is coming. Like every variation of alien or beastie that's been in a movie seems to be mentioned in some song or other. Do you have any idea? Like, was this the first one of this type that you had done? That would have been one of the first ones, monster songs I did. Well, that record, it was an EP called Zombies of Moratau, and it was all monster songs on that record. So as compared with your more recent monster songs, was one of the last, was that the last album in your year of 100 albums? Well, it was actually 150 albums that I did at the start of the year. I made a New Year's resolution Then I would release 100 albums during that year. But then by the summer, I thought, well... That's too easy. So I set a new goal for myself, 150 albums, and I was able to do that. Uh, It's called Now It's Back. It's all monster song, and they're all like a minute long. So this is just a little extra thing that I wanted to put in to sort of show how it was updated. Do it to it, because this is the one about Frankenstein. Frankenstein must be destroyed. Frankenstein must be stopped. Must be stopped. Stop him now. Destroy the monster. I don't care how you do it. Just do it. Do it. Do it to it. Chains and ropes. A spear. Pitchfork. I don't care. Just do it. Frankenstein must die. Frankenstein must be destroyed. It has to be done. Do it to it. Frankenstein has to be destroyed. By fire, guns, or spears. Just do it. I don't care how. Just do it. So you're playing the instruments. It's like kind of the same palette for a lot of the songs. Like it's not like it doesn't sound like you hunted around for keyboard sounds very long. This is my piano song. This is my vibe sound. Do you remember if not this in particular? I know you had so many. I mean, was this whole thing like a matter of 20 minutes doing three or four different overdubs? And there you go. I work pretty fast, which, you know, if you're going to release three albums in a week, 
you kind of have to move at a pretty fast clip, which, uh, you know, I'm able to do. So, you know, I try to not to overthink things. Yeah, I've had R. Stevie Moore on this show, who I know you did a couple albums with. I mean, was that one of the inspirations of, it is possible to do this? You know, he's done a thousand albums. I could spend a year at least being like that. Well, I started corresponding with Stevie back, uh, boy, it would have been 77 or 78. So yeah, I've, I've known him for years and years. It was great to have the opportunity to do some albums with him. And I noticed when you were collaborating, it was it seemed like the same thing as with Sam, that he did the music and, and sent that to you and you, or was there some difference in your various collaborations that it wasn't always like that? I had some uh, CDs, drum sounds, drum loops. So I, I sent some different drum loops to Stevie and then he added the music to the drum loops. And then that's when I added vocals. Also, Stevie did vocals as well. All right. Yeah. So it sounds like it's not that there's one formula. Maybe now in the age of the internet, there's one formula for your collaborations that, well, except when you and your brother are doing things, that's still more, are the two of you in a room when you're basically doing what you did on this now it's back and, but it's you and him in the room doing stuff. Or is there some, I mean, my brother and I've done several albums together on the last two albums that we did together. We were at a studio together. And David was playing drums, and I, I was doing the uh, guitar and the vocals. And it was pretty much all done live. I don't know that we had any overdubs on those last couple albums. Back to the the monster songs for a second. So like on this older one, it has a progression. It has a plot. I mean, it's it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I saw my girlfriend being kidnapped by Frankenstein. I was like, ah, never mind. But then I w- felt guilty and, and saved her. And then apparently after this, you know, harrowing experience, we partied and partied and partied. But whereas the new ones are just like, there's Frankenstein, kill him somehow. The end. (laughs) Any thoughts on the evolution of your fiction writing here? Boy, I don't really think of it as an evolution. If anything, I'm pretty much the same person as I was, you know, in the early 70s. I still have this pretty much the same mindset then I'm going to do whatever comes natural to me. You know what? I forgot about when thinking about the themes that you return to, the theme in here, this Frankenstein Must Die is not mostly a monster song. It is mostly a, and I walked down the stairs and I left my house and then I sat in a chair. And I've heard several, you know, you have this short songs album that I believe is mostly that lyrical theme that like, I don't have to sit and write lyrics because I could talk about anything and that's kind of interesting because nobody does that. Who who writes about, and now I'm going to move from this chair to that chair and I'm going to go get the mail. And there you go. There's a song. Okay. Like I saw a chair and I sat down. Um, working with Daniel Johnston, I was asking him about the uh, song um, Walking the Cow. And it turns out that the uh, Walking in the Cow is about Bluebell ice cream on the logo of Bluebell. It has a a young lady walking a cow, which, you know, that's kind of cool, you know, that you can look at an ice cream label and, well, okay, well, that's a song. And since we're talking about all these different collaborations and the Daniel Johnston ones are sort of, I guess, among the more well-known that those come up in Spotify as like the most listened to tracks, but you guys were actually like in a room together or did you bunk up for a couple days to pound these things out? I invited uh, Daniel to my home and. Mm-hmm. We uh, did all all the recording and all the uh, mixing in one week's time. And it was, boy, it was a lot of songs, too. Um, It's 
almost enough for two albums that we were able to record during that week. My first thought is that uh, Daniel and I would record for, you know, about four days, four or five days. And then after Daniel would leave, then I, I would do the mixing. But Daniel was made it clear to me that he was wanting to be there during the mixing. So we really had to stay focused. And uh, we got a lot done. So at that point in your career, I, tell me a little more about how you balance these things. So you have half Japanese is sort of the bread and butter, the thing that is, you know, was your entire, apparently was never the entire musical output because you were doing solo albums right from the start. How have you balanced these things? Is it just that so much of your solo stuff is just stuff that is not appropriate for who's in the band or not the way that you like to be more collaborative in the band. So if you're going to do stuff where you go in and add a bunch of crazy keyboards and percussion, then that's going to be a solo thing. What, yeah, are you just trying to fill your days with music? And like, if the band's not around, I'm going to do a solo album. Is that? I don't really prioritize things like, you know, this is, I'm going to keep this for solo or I'm going to keep that for half Japanese. It's whatever I'm doing at that time. That's mm-hmm. where my focus is. That's the priority. If I'm, at a recording session with half Japanese, I'm certainly not thinking about what should I do solo? I'm just thinking, well, what's the best thing for the band to do? I guess I'm just thinking about, you know, given when you started that the band was a very much an anything goes proposition, like why would this Frankenstein must die piece not be a band piece? It seems like it would fit on the, it's just because David doesn't play on it. Is that? I say pretty much so. Yeah. Okay. I wasn't really sure with that first triple album, you know, that's all stuff that both of you worked on together, period, right? It's not a question of, you know, the Beatles White Album. And I've done albums like this too, where like, well, I recorded a thing and you recorded a thing and it just makes more sense. We have to send it out to wherever we're going to send it. Magazines, record labels, whatever the... So I'm going to stuff my solo thing in there and we're just going to call it a band thing. And maybe if you could have an opinion on it and add a little tambourine or whatever, <laughs> but it's basically done. It sounds like you're abandoning your solo stuff strictly separate in that, well, you again, you played the Frankenstein Must Die, the version that I, I, I wasn't even remembering that there were drums on it on stage, but you're saying that you can have a solo break in a band show. Usually with the band, it's not entirely solo. More often than not, it'll be Jill Reader playing drums and me doing a vocal along to it. We like to do that anytime, like if Mick or John breaks the string, well, they can take care of that, sort that out while Gilles and I are doing a song together. Are those often just improvised that, you know, he just plays a beat and you do your, admit the jad? (laughs) No, we have some songs that that we've done before. Cherry Pie, we've done several times. Rocking Chair. So there are songs that we've kind of worked out doing the two of us. I mean, given your love of improvisation with these lyrics and things, like does any of that make it into the, the band format? It seems like you guys come up with songs pretty quickly in the studio. You could do that on stage, or but would you dare? The last three or four tours we've had together, we have a set list. And on the set list, I'll, I'll add just a, a song title, which is not a song that, that we've <laughs> ever played together. All it is is a song title. And when that song title comes up, it's all improvised. Even the, the lyrics, you know, everything, music. It can come together. There's a, a song, um, Eye of the Hurricane, which happened that, that way. And how it is on the record is almost entirely how it came together during a live show. First time we did it without any rehearsal at all. 
So are there some of those then that it starts as a, a spontaneous thing and you're like, that was actually really good. Let's reproduce that in the studio for a... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Have any of these hundreds of songs that you did for your your solo thing, were any of them like, wow, this actually, I got to take this to the band. I got to do, I have to preserve this in some other way. If you roll the dice that many times, at some point, you're going to come up with something like that you find yourself humming later that week. And okay, I guess this is a keeper in some way that maybe some of the others aren't. Well, for the uh, recording session, Half Japanese will have in London, March. I've been going through a lot of the songs that I did solo, not thinking, well, we're going to use all those lyrics, but I like that line and I'll write that down or, you know, just these two lines go well together. So I'll put that to the side and, you know, so they may pop up in a different song. I mean, some of my reason for asking about how you're balancing the band and the solo stuff is not just about your creative habits, but about the financial side and just actually managing. It sounds like you spend just as much time putting together your books of paper cuttings and, you know, other artistic work. How are you determining what you're doing on a given day? I've done like thousands of paper cuttings and drawings and I I don't know, I'm always doing something. And it sort of all feeds into the same. I can't imagine that, first of all, with that massive of albums, like I didn't even notice them at first because they're only on your Bandcamp page. Are you purposely like, I'm not going to go through the trouble of putting even most of that stuff on all the streaming services because fewer people would get around to seeing your this wonderful thing that you just did with Samuel Locke Ward if they had to wade through 50 albums, you know, that were all these things that you just, I don't know, do you see those in sort of different commercial categories as far as where you're going to put them and what you expect to get out of them? Like, Well, I'm going through the, the songs now that I released on Bandcamp. Hmm. I'm trying to put it together as, uh, you know, what would make a good single album or a good double album. I'm in contact now with, uh, well, with Kill Rock Stars. I think we'll be releasing some of those albums. I'm real pleased with the uh, record companies I'm working with now, with Fire Records for Half Japanese, Kill Rock Stars, and Joyful Noise. Um, boy, they're all just been so nice to me. I guess that is kind of the R. Stevie Moore way of doing it too. That like most of the albums that you'll hear are greatest hits <laughs> that, that, you know, that he's putting out an album worth of stuff every day, at least, you know, not anymore, but like through some of his career. And yeah, so yeah. like if something's going to make it actually to, he's going to put, you know, the effort into distributing it in a serious way. Well, it better be sort of the cream of, of that, you know, month of crop, let's say. Right, right, right. I think that's a good way to do it. Well, this was really fascinating. I want to leave people. You you had picked another great collaboration, you know, one of the more high profile ones with Teenage Fan Club. So I know you've done a bunch of uh, a few different things with Norman Blake from there and this Cupid or it's actually called Love Will Conquer on the streaming services, but it's the same song. You know, this one's over six minutes long. You get to stretch out a little, but it's a very similar, you know, you're in your love mode. It's a very positive song, but just with this beautifully... <laughs> sculpted acoustic backing thing seems like a great advantage of doing all these collaborations is just like find somebody who does instrumental beds that are really cool. And then you're now part of that band for a day or, you know, is this pretty much the same procedure as with the Sam stuff? Working with that Norman Blake of a teenage fan club, the uh, first recordings I did with Norman was with the pastels from Glasgow. 
Yeah, Norman, I really just, you know, hit it off. And uh, he's one of my best friends. And uh, we've recorded, I think, about four different albums together. And I've done a a few different tours together. And it's um, always just a a joy to work with him. All right. Any thoughts about this 2002 Words of Wisdom and Hope collaboration before we let folks hear that song? Well, Teenage Fan Club, I, I think, are such a fine band. So I was very thrilled to uh, have the opportunity to work with them. Also, um, Glasgow is, I think it's one of the best cities in the, in the world. I always have a good time when I'm in uh, Scotland and in uh, Glasgow. Okay, yeah. So this is 2002. The internet exists, but this is not like Sam sending you the tracks. This is you being in the room with the band as they're recording this. They're like a half Japanese album now. That pretty much you just get to be the lead singer of these different bands. That's pretty fun. I mean, was that sort of the same thing with your, uh, actually, I'm holding the one with the Shapir Orama that I happen, this is a CD I own from the 90s, which, oh, yeah, yeah. you know, is a very half Japanese, like crazy. I know it had some members in common with, I think, maybe <laughs> with your half Japanese bandmates. I don't know, another New York institution or Yola Tengo. Were you actually located in New York through some of these? It's, it seems like so much New York punk. I was in uh, Hoboken for a while. Okay, all right. Which is, is where uh, Yola Tango were living. Well, I ran Georgia. And um, Steve Shelley from uh, Sonic Youth. I was spending a lot of time with Steve. Actually, I was in a band with Steve and Tim Follian and uh, uh, James McNew, the band Mosquito. Hmm. All right. I've had Steve Shelley on my list for a while. I've played with a couple of people that have done stuff with him, done interviews with a few people who played stuff with him. Well, thanks so much for doing this. It was really a pleasure. I, I gave myself an extra long prep time for this one because I knew that two weeks was not going to be enough to, to get any kind of handle on what you've done. And I, I did not get through all of the albums, obviously, but most of the stuff that's on the streaming services and all the half Japanese albums. So it is an experience I would recommend <laughs> to folks. Oh, well, th- thank you, Mark. All right, here it is with Teenage Fan Club, Cupid. Cupid shot me with his bow And made my life so wonderful shot me with his arrow And now I know how much I care for Cupid shot me in the heart And I know we'll never part Cupid shot me without mercy Love will conquer all Troubles come and troubles fall But don't give up for in the end Love will conquer all Shot me in the night 
shot me with his weapon shot me and I'm glad he did from his arrow I did not hit Cupid's bow had dead aim and now I'll never be the same love will conquer all Troubles come and troubles fade Don't give up, for like I said Love will conquer Cupid is a righteous dude And I'm glad for everything he dude Cupid shot me with his bow And made my life so wonderful Cupid shot me with his arrow And now I know how much I care for Love will conquer all all your troubles, big and small, don't give up, y'all. Love will conquer all, just like Superman. Superman. Well, I have one request. In fact, I have a quest. Superman And you can be my Lois Lane And we'll go walking on down Lover's Lane See all our troubles go straight on down The thing that water goes down And we'll always have a smile And never have no sad look on our face Because we will have a love that time cannot stop We'll take it on up to the um, pinnacle And I'll even buy some cotton candy And won't that be dandy And then we'll jump in the station wagon Take it up to the North Pole Sit there on Santa's knee Just you and I And I want to be your Superman I would not be satisfied being your Batman or Aquaman I want the very best I want to be a Superman
Thanks so much to Jad. What a sprawling catalog. I recommend if you're interested that you start with those late 80s, early 90s half Japanese albums and give them a couple spins. That at least worked for me as a fan of bands like Pavement from that same time period. For more about Jad's music, see jadfair.net. You can also look him up on Bandcamp. Note that he has two separate Bandcamp pages. Jadfair.bandcamp.com has just the same albums you'll see on the streaming services, but Jadfair1.bandcamp.com has that full 150 albums in one year experiment. And you know, if he actually did that to completion, then his estimate on that page that he's done 180 albums has got to be pretty low because he's definitely done more than 30 albums besides just that one year, 2021. Anyway, it's very easy to get lost in the catalog. When I was listening to his older solo stuff on Spotify and it would finish an album, it would start playing The Residents, which is a group that's been featured on this podcast and is sort of the gold standard for really changing your expectations of how much music can ignore the virtues that you would normally look for in terms of polish and playing, singing in tune And while, of course, my own music, I do try to fulfill those expectations to make my songs actually something that people would want to listen to. If you've not gone through a period of ignoring those and just having more fun with it, being a little crazier with it, then I think your music is going to be much less interesting. So there's my pitch for hard to listen to music. And I mean, you've just sat through this, that whole Frankenstein must die song that is challenging, let's say, for many listeners. Whereas something like the opening song that we did with Samuel Lockward and that whole album I highly recommend, Happy Hearts, is going to be accessible to pretty much anyone. So this was a lot of fun prep. It introduced me to folks like Kramer from Shimmy Disc Records, whom Jad has done a number of collaborations with. I'll probably try to get Kramer on here at some point because his stuff is also very interesting. I didn't know anything about Daniel Johnston, despite his being an Austin person, and I lived in Austin. And the list goes on. Now, this was my first interview of 2023, and I gave myself, I think, four full weeks to prep for it. I've now gotten back in the regular schedule, and the next interview, as I announced last time, will be with two guys from the band's Eyelids. And I'm just about to talk to Ivan Julian, who is a member of Richard Hell and the Voidoids. Very distinctive guitar style, best known for playing with Matthew Sweet on several albums and has had some collaborations with Alejandro Escovedo and other folks. So I've got a lot of good stuff in the pipeline. Make sure you're subscribed to the Nakedly Examined Music feed. Even if you happen to be hearing this through the Partially Examined Life feed, you can get the links for that at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com or just look us up on the streaming service of your choice. I do really appreciate your support. And if you don't want to hear me reading ad copy anymore, or much less the horrendous auto-insertion ads that I'm using increasingly now, because I have to, to pay for this thing, then uh, go to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic and get the ad-free feed. Or if you use Apple Podcasts and are already listening to the Nakedly Examined Music feed, just click the little subscribe button and it'll start charging you a little money. You get the ad-free feed for three of my podcasts which is a very good deal. Now, if you do that through Apple, then I will not know who you are, but I want to thank my current patrons, Ethan, Christopher, Matthew, Bernard, Mark, and David, as well as all my past supporters and you, the wider listenership. I very much value your feedback. You can 
Email me at mark at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com to make suggestions for guests for the show or provide any feedback you may have. But most importantly, keep on musicking. Until next time, this is Mark Linsenmeyer signing off. Yeah.